And here's a test question from me. Who's the woman on the $50 note? Well, it's Edith Cowan, the first woman elected to Parliament in Australia. And, of course, a great university in Perth bears her name, a campus famed for all sorts of research, not least on those priceless seagrasses that could help save us. And here once more is Professor of Marine Science, Dr Paul Lavery. Paul, good to see you again. How are those grasses faring? The state of the environment report was released last year. I participated in that and consulted with colleagues around the country to get an idea about the state of seagrasses nationally. The biggest problem is that for vast amounts of the country, there really isn't any ongoing monitoring going on. So we don't really know. A lot of it is expert opinion, best guess. On that basis, the view was that probably in the West, other than a few hot spots, and those hot spots are in urban areas, the seagrass is probably in reasonable condition. There are other areas in the country where that's patently not the case. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, for example, has got large areas where seagrass meadows have suffered losses and other large embayments, Melbourne area, the estuaries in New South Wales, for example. So it's a very mixed picture. In Western Australia, you're right, we've got vast areas of seagrass. Shark Bay, of course, a world heritage area, one of the largest seagrass meadows in the world, over 4,000 square kilometres. A quarter of that meadow was lost in a single heat wave event back in 2011. There is a small amount of recovery from that loss. But of course, that's a big alarm bell ringing for the future. Now we've had COP and we've had the IPCC meetings and so on. And we know how desperate it is to get not just zero emissions, but to get carbon removed from the atmosphere. And of course, seagrasses do this practically better than any other way. Well, better than trees, Mm. amazingly enough. Hasn't that reputation had an impact? It has. And I think over the last 10 years, we've seen a gradual increase in awareness, particularly with policymakers, politicians, of the potential value. We call this blue carbon. Uh, So green carbon is the carbon which trees capture. And we've all seen large plantation of trees designed to strip carbon out of the atmosphere and offset climate change. The marine ecosystems, like seagrasses, along with mangroves and tidal marshes, are per unit area... So every square metre of those habitats takes a lot more carbon out. And importantly, it doesn't just take it out, but it buries it in their soils. And once it's in those soils, it's captured there for thousands of years, which doesn't necessarily happen with the terrestrial ecosystems. So this is their big value. Now, there's been 10 years of research and 10 years of efforts by all sorts of people to raise awareness of this. And I think in the last four years or so, that's really started to get some traction. And so since we last spoke, I think probably one of the major advances we've seen is that the government has actually introduced policy to try to bring these ecosystems into the carbon mitigation programs that we have. So Australia has something called the Emissions Reduction Fund. That's our current approach to try to reduce carbon emissions in the country. And last year, for the first time, these blue carbon ecosystems were brought into that framework. A lot of scientists around the country, led by Catherine Lovelock from University of Queensland, we all worked on developing a framework which the government introduced, and that involves tidal marshes, mangroves, and to some extent seagrasses. 
what I think is really important here is that a lot of the methods which are being considered are about restoring or creating new habitat. And I can understand that. It's very exciting. It appeals to people that we can go out, we can build some new habitat, we'll turn this bare sand into a seagrass meadow, and that will capture all this carbon. That 10 years of research has shown us very clearly that there are vast amounts of carbon captured in these ecosystems. And if we disturb those ecosystems, we potentially release that vast amount of carbon. So, for example, around Australia, the carbon that's already captured in those ecosystems is about 10 to 12 years of total emissions from the country. If we were to lose those habitats, that carbon is going to go back into the atmosphere. Now, every year, they capture a little bit more and they add it to that stock. But that's a very, very small percentage. We've got thousands and thousands of years of carbon captured in here. So while the appeal is in building a new habitat because we can capture more carbon, the much greater risk is damaging or losing the existing habitat because we will export vast amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. So I, su I suppose my plea is, <laughs> if there's a policy maker listening to this, let's not forget to focus on conservation of the seagrasses, mangroves, tidal marshes that we already have, because if we lose those, we will more than offset any efforts through restoration or creation of new habitat. Restoration is good, but don't forget the other one. Absolutely. Yeah, it's got to be both approaches. Yeah. We hear quite a lot of ways in which citizen science, especially involving young people, can work on land, planting trees and whatever, urban trees we've heard from the West, someone who used to work on seagrasses with you way back. Mm -hmm. Can you do that also offshore with all the risks of mishap in the water? Yes, you can certainly attempt to do that, and those attempts are underway. There's a, a magnificent program called Seeds for Snappers underway, and that's not just in Western Australia, it's, it's around the country in various places. Until recently, efforts to restore seagrass were built primarily around going into an existing meadow, cutting out a piece of the seagrass, transporting it to somewhere else and transplanting it into the soil, very much like we would do in a terrestrial environment. Not very successful, being polite. The realisation has been that we probably need to work with the biology of the plants much more, and so the seagrass restoration people have now switched their focus to saying, OK, these plants produce seeds. They produce millions of seeds each year. Why aren't we collecting those seeds and putting them into the areas and, and seeing what we can achieve? Now, seagrasses come in many varieties. Some of them, their fundamental biology is to reproduce and recolonize areas through seeds. Others, that's not necessarily the main mechanism. So understandably, this seed-based approach has had great success for some species. For some of the larger species which form the massive habitats that we see around southern Australia, the focus on seeds is relatively new. It's in its infancy and the results, I think, we're still waiting to see. But there's certainly a lot of focus there. And that's where the seeds for snappers is coming in. And that's where the collection of those millions of seeds can't be done by the research scientists. That's where the citizen scientists are coming in and they're going out on scuba, on boats, collecting millions of these seeds, bringing them back to land and then taking them back out to disperse them in new areas. Then, of course, something we haven't mentioned is the fishers. And, of course, the seagrasses are nurseries. And if you want to say goodbye to your fish stocks, <laughs> yep. mangroves and seagrasses, well, that message surely has got through by now. 
I would hope so. It should have done. And I do think that recreational fishers in particular are very much aware that there's a link between the health of the habitat and the fish that they're going to catch. I think that message has got through very clearly. And if it hasn't, then I'm repeating it now. What still surprises me, I suppose, is that despite that message getting through, you still find an innate concern or opposition to the declaration of marine protected areas. And of course, what marine protected areas are doing is protecting this habitat. And then producing more fish. In other words, which leak out of the protected areas as well. So ultimately, the fishing goes up as well. Exactly. This, this is what we call the spillover effect. And this is not news. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember one of my first PhD students back in the 1990s demonstrated this for the Ningaloo Marine Park. If you go into the sanctuary zones, the areas in the marine parks where you cannot fish at all, then the size of the fish and the biomass of fish is much larger and these fish will spill across the boundary into the areas outside. It's a very clear argument for having protection of our marine habitats, including seagrasses. Well, the department here has done fabulously well. Is there sufficient strength in the rest of Australia? Academically, I think Australia is definitely one of the hothouses of marine science and particularly seagrasses. Along with the US, there's a real concentration. We have the people. My concern as, as an older marine researcher who's, and had a fantastic career working on seagrasses is the increasing difficulty in being able to put scientists into the water these days. The compliance regulation around diving and boating activities is just making it harder and harder. And of course, we need to be safe, but we also need to do it in a way which isn't gonna cripple the next generation of marine scientists. My plea to decision makers and policy makers would be, let's communicate with the marine scientists, let's work out a system that's gonna work for everybody. Paul Lavery is Professor of Marine Science at the Edith Cowan University, and we trust expert listeners will help facilitate the return of researchers to those waters.